Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CTMP60 podcast. This is our eighth episode in this series as we trace the storied history of Canadian Tire Motorsport Park back through the days of Old Motorsport, of course. Our guests today are a father and son duo who have spent their careers promoting Canadian motorsport through journalism, public relations, and marketing, of course, including racing events at CTMP. Sid Priddle started off as a motorsport reporter in the early 1960s, covering racing events at Mosport and around Canada, before becoming more involved on the PR side and eventually working for the agency that was a subsidiary of Mosport owners Harvey Hudis and Bernie Kamen. Sid's long career eventually earned him a well-deserved induction into the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame in 2016. Sid's son Jerry got the racing bug from his dad, no doubt, much like myself, and eventually worked for Mosport in the public relations side in the 1980s before leaving to go work for his dad. After a stint working for Bridgestone, he returned to Mosport for what he calls his second tour of duty. <laughs> and today, Jerry runs his own PR company and has been heavily involved with PR at CTMP over the last decade, and I consider him one of my mentors. Both Sid and Jerry carry years and years of experience in the sport, and along with it, many, many stories, of course. So we hope you enjoy, and without further ado, here they are, Sid and Jerry Priddle. Were you, so are you, were you born in Montreal, Sid? No, I was born in St. John, New Brunswick. Oh, okay, wow. And uh, moved to Montreal, oh, early 50s, grade six, whatever age that was. Right. And uh, then subsequently moved around different places in Montreal, ended up at the Montreal Star, where I met my wife. Where's the Montreal wow. Star? Yeah. I didn't know that. Didn't know that? No, I did not know that. I was a motorsport writer for a while. After a while, I was told to cover motorsport because I was a low man on the totem pole at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, that was the day when you had uh, the Gazette was the morning paper and the Star was the afternoon. Oh, that's right. Huh. Wow. Yeah, that's right. That I delivered. I was a Globe and Mail delivery boy. Oh, so early starts for you. <laughs> well, I delivered the Gazette. Before I became, uh, before I moved to the the Star Sports Department, but uh, yeah, Chris Allen was a motorsport writer at the Gazette. Hmm. And did you did you have any interest in motorsport before you uh, got put on the beat, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, that's oh. a good question to ask. No, actually, no. When my boss called me in to say I had to cover motorsport, he said. I said, I can't even drive a car. So he said, well, you're a low man on the totem pole, so it's all yours. So <laughs> it turned out great for a variety of reasons. So, yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're rolling. This is kind of just a very casual, the setting for the podcast we find is just like hanging out, reminiscing, yeah. uh, telling stories. So I'm, I'm very glad that you guys can both join us. Um, but yeah, we're kind of already rolling into it. So I guess maybe if you want to talk about, you kind of got put on this beat and then ended up at what was most port in 1961. So what was that? What was that like? That was my, uh, I, uh, I went to the sports editor to tell him I wanted to go cover that race. And he said, well, 
if we use your story, we'll cover your expenses. <laughs> and there was a fella in the composing room who was a motorsport nut. So I went, I drove to Motorsport with him and his 544 Volvo, slept into the car on corner 10. Yeah. And, uh, but I had a media pass, got the story done, interviewed Moss. And at that time, Moss was married to, or dating Katie Wilson. All right. right. And he mentioned something to Katie that, geez, for a kid who didn't know anything about motorsport, that was a pretty good story. Well, the Molson family and the McConnell family who owned the star, uh, traveled in the same circus circuits. And Katie happened to mention it to McConnell, what Moss said. And uh, McConnell phoned the sports department and said, okay, I want that kid on the motorsport beat and I want motorsport recognized as a major sport from now on. <laughs> That's how it happened. So there you go. Yeah. Thank you, Katie Molson. Yeah. And we all know about David McConnell. So, uh, when he raced, but uh, yeah, that's how it all happened. Did you interview Moss before the race or after, or, or was it both? Or? Both, both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty uh, easy interview. From uh, you know, he he led you down the path, especially when you knew nothing about the sport. But uh, he was very easy to deal with. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. What was the what was the that event like? I mean, I don't know what the attendance was, but uh, yeah. the place was absolutely jam packed. And uh, in wow. fact, if I'm not mistaken, it set a record for uh, a single day Canadian sport uh, sporting event. Wow! Yeah. Well, at that time, it was even bigger than the Grey Cup. Wow, that's amazing. And so it was it was a pretty insane event then <laughs> well what i do remember are the lineups trying to get in so off oh, the yeah. 400 it was even bad off the 401 rather and all the way through bowmanville none of us knew the back roads in those days so and uh who were the who were some of the other drivers that you got to talk to that weekend oh olivier olivier jean uh yokin well, what was his name yokin forget Jochen Moss or uh, not Jochen Rent, but uh, anyway. I, what, maybe Joe Bonnier? Was it yeah, Joe Bonnier, yes. Okay, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Betty thought Joe Bonnier was the greatest. And they were staying at the Park Plaza and we happened to walk in front of the garage exit and Bonnier almost hit her. He touched her with his car, so that made her day. So, <laughs> but all of the guy in all of them in that era were easy to deal with. I mean, they were so you know they weren't the way Formula One went, uh, but they were uh, very agreeable to press conferences, very agreeable to one-on-one -on -one interviews in between sessions. Uh, it didn't seem to bother them race day or what kind of pressure they were under. Wow. That's amazing. And so, uh, that's the, it's pretty crazy that you just from that interview and it kind of, uh, snowballed into, do you feel like that weekend kind of 
set you on a on a career path with motorsport oh there's no question because uh the story ended up front page sports which was unheard of in those days for motorsport in a major newspaper so yes and uh front page of the montreal star what's that front page of the montreal star front page of the sports section Oh, front page of the sports. Yeah, still front page yeah. of the sports section. Wow, wow. Yeah, amazing! And then you followed up with uh, nice of Peter Ryan to win the race in the fall that yes. year, in October and of that year. Uh, Peter won the. I guess they called it the Canadian Grand Prix. It was really sports racing cars. Yeah, uh, but he beat Moss and the Pedro uh, Rodriguez brothers, uh, all yeah. of the big names, international names. Wow. And uh, he was in a, I think I'm looking at it here on my wall. Yeah. And he drove it for Comstock, drove the car for Comstock. Wow. Oh, wow. The Lotus 19. What was he, what was he like? I've only heard stories, Peter? obviously. Oh, yeah. he was cool. I mean, he's, he was, uh, yes, he was a, you know, a fairly well off boy, but uh, I don't know whether you knew that what he uh, was a big skier and his, desire was to be skiing in the olympics oh, wow. he broke his leg Oops. and if you recall uh around that era sterling moss also broke his leg and moss used a pedal set up in the hospital to strengthen his leg and peter did the same thing wow. and it was from there that uh, a lot of stories came out about skiers having the same uh, feeling in their bum lack of description for racing cars yeah and uh, it's unfortunate peter but he, he was uh he was a very very aggressive driver hmm. and smooth hmm. that's what i remember about him and easy again to deal with yeah wow and so how wh- where did it go from from there after your uh, you kind of got, you were getting established as the motorsport writer. Did you, did you cover a lot of events at Mosport or? Yeah, pretty well. All the events okay. from then on at Mosport, uh, and then some of the, uh, local events and there was a racetrack called saint Eugene, which was an airport circuit on the border of Quebec and Ontario. And that was, uh, owned and run by the MG Car Club at the time, Ross St. Croix was the president of the club. Okay. So there was a lot of regional races there. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I did cover all of those events. And then you, uh, you, how did you get involved with the, the IndyCar uh, event in 67? Were you working uh, PR or were you working in the uh, newspaper business still? Oh, no, in 67? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was uh, actually, I had been working for Track and Traffic magazine, which oh, was okay. by Norm Namerol. And then I was approached by um, PR company, PRSL, to uh, join them to handle the first Formula One race in 67. Okay. But in addition to that, uh, John Bassett Jr. at that time, uh, was a good friend of the president of PRSL. So we ended up promoting the Indy Tele race as well, which okay. was a two, 
two uh, split in two uh, race two race two heats. I guess is what it was. Right. Yeah. That's that actually the first uh, time <laughs> those cars ever appeared on uh, a road course. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I do remember a couple of them uh, pedaled to the metal uh, down to corner one and kept going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, they didn't know much about turning left and right. <laughs> yeah. What were those guys like? Because there's a bit of a different group than the European drivers, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were southern boys. Uh, you know, almost on the verge of uh, having a cigar or cigarette while they're driving their cars. But uh, I mean, there were some great drivers in those days. It was the Andretti's and the Unser's and yeah. uh, Wally Dallenbach. I remember he came in to do advanced promotion, and we didn't have to pay those guys to do that. That was uh, the marvel of it, and uh, it really allowed them to uh, get allowed the media to get close and understand them. And that was sort of my PR strategy, if you wish. Having been a journalist, I said, what does a journalist nowadays want to hear from a race driver? Or what does he want to know about it? So that was sort of my direction that I followed as a PR person. Yeah. And it's not true, Ron, what they say. PR does not stand for profit and revenge. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one. <laughs> certainly, certainly not in PR and as a driver, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, well, uh, I heard. Uh, if I'm from reading some of my my notes that I got advanced right that that you had a bit of a story with, with AJ Foyt was that the same weekend? With AJ Foyt, sixty-seven, or am I maybe I messed that up? <laughs> Not there. Uh, wasn't there a time you were driving Foyt, or maybe it was another IndyCar driver, and you you were going along the four hundred one at maybe a tad over the limit? <laughs> oh no, that was Sterling Moss. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, we were down taking him out to CFTO <laughs> for an interview, and I got pulled over. And uh, we were on a, I forget now who the P, uh, sports guy was then, maybe Pat Marsden, but maybe even earlier. And the police officer pulled me over and said, Who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And I said, No, but we don't beat him. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and he let me go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, nobody's sitting right? next to you. But he had to do it real quick because the moment the officer showed up, Moss was ready to yak at him. And I thought, oh no, I got to get out of here quickly. I was going to yeah. say, it might, it might have had a different outcome if you had AJ Foyt with you. Yes, yeah. AJ Foyt wouldn't have been <laughs> fun. No. <laughs> that is awesome. Who do you think you are, Shirley Moss? Uh, no, that'd be him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah, no, That's just great. walked right into it. Couldn't have oh, we couldn't have written it. No, you can't you can't make yeah. that up. <laughs> That's awesome. And then uh later on, I guess that year in sixty seven that was uh the first Canadian Grand Prix. Yes. What um what kind of involvement did you have at that event? Mainly just doing publicity. And then okay. that was a more of a job of 
what I did is a lot of backgrounders as news releases on the on the drivers because it was really getting the local media to understand and know who they were and what their personalities were and what their achievements yeah. were. So uh, a lot of it, as opposed to say a news release, it was a backgrounder on the driver himself. Right. And uh, that was the way that we were able to get the media to be familiar with who these Europeans were that were coming over here. So, what was the what was the more because um, there were a few Canadian storylines for that weekend, right? So what was what was more the buzz of was it about Epi being in the other Lotus or was it about Alpes or who was the kind of the more uh, Alpes was in that uh, I forget now what I guess he I forget what car he drove to be honest okay. with you. Um, I think the stories were still. Uh, the Canadians might have got lost in the stardom, quite frankly. Okay. Uh, not unusual, but, uh, you know, when people were saying, well, this is a world champion of this, world champion of that. Uh, I mean, Epi was a good story. And subsequently, I think I think it was a year later that Bill Brack drove in the F1 race of Montreal, I believe. Uh, but yeah, Epi, uh, I mean, Epi, as you all know, was a very aggressive race driver and very good in the front of 5,000 series mm -hmm. as well. Um, but yes, it was great to see a Canadian, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, mixing it up with the big stars. Yeah. From what he he, I managed to hear him tell that story, but he didn't get much practice time in the car because I think. Clark crashed on one of the early practice sessions and right. I had to use his car. <laughs> yeah. So he got like no correct. practice yes. time. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good, uh, good memory. I forgot about that. Crazy. I can't, I can't imagine going into, you know, your first Formula One race and <laughs> you've got basically no practice time. No. Insane. Well, it put everyone on pretty well on an equal plane because it rained. So yeah, it was yeah. it was a messy day. <laughs> it very was yeah yeah, and you know the it was Jack Brabham who won that race, and uh, when it came to giving him his prize money, he just asked for it in the garbage bag. <laughs> <laughs> he walked in with his cash in the garbage bag. <laughs> oh dear. That's not the first story I've heard about cash in garbage bags at Mostport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So how how did you eventually you went to work for Harvey and and Bernie, right? Yes, there was a company called MRP. Okay. That was um, run by Len Coates at the time. And Len moved on, and uh, so I was, and then Chris Allen, they were thinking of hiring Chris Allen, but then they came to me and asked me if I would do it, uh, and I changed the name to Media Relations and Promotions, because I didn't want to be tagged strictly motorsport, and uh, we did that uh we did a lot of Labatt's work and Can-Am work in those days. 
And then uh, we took on the um, STP sponsorship of Bill Brack when he oh, raced. Cool. Uh, and it was made the deal with a fellow by the name of John Gardella, who was sort of uh, Andy of the North, if you wish. Andy Granatelli of the North, we used to call him. So, yeah. But I mean, that was a lot of fun. That was, and, and that whole, if you know Bill, he, he wasn't a great comfort with media, but he knew how to get publicity. And I remember there was a race in Winnipeg and the big rivalry was between he and a guy by the name of Bertel Roos. Yes, I remember the worst. Um, and uh, Bill called. I wasn't at that race, and Bill called me after the race, and he said, "Sid, I think I got us some ink." I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, I threw a rock at Bertle." <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Would that have been the track back in over in? Was it Gimli? Gimli, yes, okay. yeah, yeah. But I also remember a race with Bill, although it was at uh, Montrama, but his other big rivalry at the time was Kiki Rosberg. Yeah. And I uh, remember uh, the two of them were on the front row and Bill walked over to him just before they were to get in the cars and said, you know, Kiki, only one of us is gonna come out of the corner and I'll be <laughs> damned if Kiki didn't back off. <laughs> And once you got the lead at Trumbla, you were there. You were sad. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of psyching. Ron, I think I cut you off. You were going to say something. Yeah, no, my 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 question for Sid was so this this company, this company was owned by by Harvey as well as it as the it was like a a um a, you know a, a subsidiary of the racetrack? Yeah. A media, media company? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Bernie and Harvey were the two bosses. Right. And uh, Harvey, as you know, uh, understood marketing for sure. Oh, yeah. Bernie, yeah. but Bernie was the sort of the business uh, tough guy, if you wish. But I do remember them, um, me saying to Bernie one day and, and saying, you know, it'd be. I really am putting a lot of miles on my old car. And out of the blue, he said, we'll go get another one and we'll we'll pay for it. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bernie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they were, uh, I, they let me do my job. And that was what was good about it. So mm -hmm. it was, uh, I felt that I, you know, had a pretty good handle on what needed to be yeah. done. So the 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 managing of uh, um, a motorsport property on behalf of uh, Labats or uh, it, so that was that included support of the of the racetrack, but other things as well, as you mentioned, STP. Yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I was very fortunate in the days that I worked for PRSL after I did that first uh, F1 race for, it was for players, but I did all of the players' motorsport and eventually all their sports 
programs after that, the tennis, the golf, uh, and then even the uh, sponsorship when they switched over to individuals, starting with uh, young Jock and Greg Moore, of course. And, um, and that was their whole strategy was switching to from events to individuals. Right. And that's what led me down the path to doing the Dario Paul Tracy program with Cool, because Brandon Williamson was owned by British American Tobacco, which also owned Imperial Tobacco. And the president of Imperial was Bob Benson, who went to the US. And that's how I got that assignment. Huh. And what year would that have been? Was that uh, 90? Uh, let me see. Um, would have been late 90s because you, you were saying it was after the Andy Evans era. Yes, that's right. Yes, because I was, you're right. Because I, everyone, I thought we were going to end up moving to Vegas. And if you recall, Andy was going to buy uh, Las Vegas Speedway. Oh. And uh, it was a Labor Day weekend. And what happened was that a variety of the vice presidents decided that they just didn't want to work with Andy anymore. Hmm. And so here I was out in Vegas wondering what I'm going to do. And I got a call from Armand Torquia in Montreal saying, can we use your name in a presentation to uh, Brown and Williamson? And I knew that Bob Benson was there. So, or Bob Benson rather. And I said, sure. I said, Armand, this will dictate my fee. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Uh. Jerry, what do you remember about those those days uh, at the track with, with your dad and being a kid and all that? Well, I, I mean, I was really fortunate um, because I had the opportunity to go out. So he'd be working. A lot of times my mom would come out, so I'd have some parental supervision but you know yeah. definitely a different era as a like a 10 11 12 year old where you know be i'll be back in a couple of hours and uh <laughs> you know could shoot out and um start wandering the grounds and uh yeah. you know walk in the paddock walk in the garage and uh you know go um just go go hang out and uh you know i, I really remember the, the garage as well and that you know, that opportunity to um, go in the back door, which now would be around the area of where the, uh, the back entrance of Braden is, and just walking down the length of uh, the garage and, you know, whether it be Formula One or Can-Am teams, um, and you could really get a sense because you could see them all one after the other yeah. of, you know, who had their act together and, and who was scrambling. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I do remember in some of those early years, uh, I, I loved the OP shadow, but but they would always let me down on the track, right? Until maybe later, <laughs> later in the series, and and they always seemed to be the guys that were putting uh, putting the work in uh, late at night. Um, yeah, so just you know, good opportunities and and access to drivers. Um, I, I think probably for me, the the, the strongest memory was. Uh, a time that Sid uh, arranged for me to meet with Jackie Stewart. Um, 
And, and the meeting happened after Jackie had been knocked out of the F1 race. So, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, this probably isn't going to happen. And then I remember, uh, I think it was my mom actually that said, okay, you're up. He's in this car. And I went over, uh, there was someone driving the car. I got in the back seat with him and, and we were basically driving slowly across the paddock with throngs of people, you know, kind of pushing in on the car, trying to get a, wow. a look at Jackie, but, but he was laser focused on me, uh, you know, talking, I was asking him questions and, um, yeah, it was, it was a cool feeling. It's probably the only completely ignored me. I remember <laughs> <laughs> not a kid. Well, I, I think it was a little cuter than you were back then. Maybe I don't know, but, well, how, um, how old were you then? Like, I would have been probably about 12. 11. Yeah. So there was, yeah. So, so it must have been that 69 race where Jackie Eakes took him out at turn two. That's correct. Yeah. Could have, yeah. Boy. So I would have been younger. I would have been nine then. Yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, just to uh, kind of in wow. that era, a couple of years later, um, I got my first job in life and, and that was selling programs at most wow. work. Uh, so we used to get paid three cents a program. <laughs> and we worked our butts off, you know, like I would be, That's I don't know how many times I would walk up and down that grandstand, the, the big front straight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was good. And um, a name that like anyone who used to follow Wheelspin News way back when was a guy that used to work for Harvey at Mosport. And then he went into the publishing business. Um, he, he acquired Wheelspin News and that was Pete Chapman. He yeah. bought it from Dizzy Dean, I believe. That's right. And uh, so Pete looked after all of us program sellers. We were all kind of in that, you know, age 11 to 16 range. And we would sleep at the tower at night and, uh, you know, get to go down to the garages. Uh, I did my first ever track walk with uh, one of your previous guests, Paul Chater. Yeah. And, you know, he showed me around and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a good experience. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So the Knights is slapped in the tower. You didn't touch uh, Harvey's water bottle, did you? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that water bottle magically appeared Sunday mornings, right? It was water all the way through until Sunday mornings. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I, question, what, I guess. Oh, go ahead, Ron. I want to know. Sorry, what did he change it to? Usually it was gin. I, I, I ended up, uh, I ended up going to work for Harvey in 1982. And, and that was one of my first assignments on the race weekends. I had to get, I didn't buy the gin, uh, but I had to buy olives, forks. There were a whole bunch of other, you know, different garnishes that I had to get, uh, all had to be approved by Jim Clayton. Because he was the um, right, yes, the Somali, you know, there, I'm, I'm sure there's another word for it, but he was the he was the martini expert and um, the connoisseur. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you guys can both talk about it. Uh, but what what was I, Harvey's kind of like a, a huge figure in this this history of the track, and so what was what was he like to work for? Go ahead, Sid. You leave. Uh, I found him very uh, easy to work for, uh, demanding. Um, 
he for you know harvey used to be the accountant for track traffic at one time and he caught on to the media marketing business very quickly so he knew what he was talking about and he had a lot of great ideas of how to put bums in seats for lack of better description and uh as long as you understood that part of the game then you got along very well with him and he admired everything you did. And, and also uh, he would uh, congratulate you on a success. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I agree. I mean, for, for me, I went to work there as a 22 year old. So I'd, I'd spent a couple of years before working at Wheelspin, uh, which I'll, I'll come back to in a sec. Um, Sure. But uh, I just and, and I, I remember Harvey when I was a kid out to the track and, and he was, you know, a giant then like you just knew he was someone that, that was important. Um, so I was I was pretty intimidated uh, for that first year or two and always you know concerned about uh, a, a misstep in that. Um, but, you know, as, as time went on. Uh, you also, you know, learned that there, there were some different Harveys, you know, the, the Harvey that would be uh, at that office in Allness, um, you know, who was, to me, that was the accountant Harvey, and, and I, I guess some of the promoter, um, and then at the track, just very focused on, on what was happening, you know, in, in all aspects, all facets of the track. Um, but then when you would, uh, you know, meet Harvey in, in more of a social setting, um, just a, you know, a very happy-go-lucky guy who enjoyed being with people, enjoyed the company, and um, yeah, it was just, you know, was, was a good person. And uh, I, I got to know him, you know, much better uh, kind of later in my time at Mosport, probably like around 86, 87, because um, <clears throat> we were scouting out a couple of other, uh, actually would have been a little earlier, probably about 84, uh, we were scouting out some other forms of motorsport that that Harvey wanted to get into, and and that's that promoter side of him uh, that was uh, was shining through. Um, so one of them was hydroplane boat racing. So uh, I went to a couple of events with him stateside. One of them actually, Miles Brandt came with us uh, down to Toledo and uh, checked out that race, and then another one. I went to, and I, the name's going to escape me, but it was in New Hampshire and uh, one of the big uh, Thunderboat races, as, as they were calling them then. So these would have been the same boats that ran at Valley Field in Quebec every year, kind of, you know, their version of yeah. the Indy 500. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, um, you know, talked about family, talked about the business. And, um, and then the, the other trip that I'll always remember, uh, and again, Miles was with us. Um, we made the pilgrimage down to Eldora Speedway, uh, and this was when Harvey was thinking, or was thinking of, and ultimately did build uh, what he wanted to call Ascot North. Mm -hmm. And uh, the promoter then was a the guy by the name of Earl Baltez, and uh, like he he looked like a character out of Smokey and the Bandit, right? He was, um, and and I remember driving. It was it was dark so it might have been late uh, late in the season late summer early fall and uh we, we were out in the middle of nowhere it was just like cornfields and farmers fields and it, and it was almost like field of dreams that over in the distance you could see this glow in in the horizon and as you got closer you started to realize 
there's a racetrack here and and, and there were it, it was just phenomenal it was like coming out of nowhere into this whole other world of you know of people and color and um we uh you know found our spot went and got our passes earl baltez looked after us with with top-notch passes and then proceeded to take harvey with you know miles and i kind of tagging along through each of the facets of of the business and, and this is all while the racing's happening wow. out on the track and, and i remember harvey's jaw almost dropping when earl took us into his kitchen and just showed like the process of you know how he was bringing people in and how they were cooking and and things like that and and then i mean the the show itself you know for anyone who's seen a world of outlaws show it just it overwhelms the senses so yeah. um yeah so but but you know so a lot of a lot of time to talk to him and uh you know just learn about his philosophies of life and uh and business and um you know, I, I can, uh, I've worked for Sid, I've worked for some other people, I've worked for Miles, so I've got to be careful what I say, but <laughs> I, um, I think probably one of the toughest days in my life was was the day that I had to go in and say to Harvey, uh, I, I was going to move on. Um, you know, it made it easier because I was moving on to join Sid uh, in, in a new venture that he was launching. Um, but yeah, no, I, I had a lot of respect for him and, uh, yeah, it was, and, and one of the, you know, the saddest days was the day that, you know, that we learned he, he had passed. So, um, you know, we can, all the accolades that he gets, he deserves and, uh, just, uh, yeah, one of my favorite people. Yeah. It's amazing on this podcast, how we've heard from basically every person so far has spoke about how Harvey gave them some sort of opportunity or gave them some sort of advice or oh, for sure. did something for them that helped, mm -hmm. you know, their career. And it's just like incredible to me um, that it's not just and, the track, it's, you know, the people and Harvey, of course. So. Yeah. And the, you know, the other thing I'll just add, it kind of struck me now, but um, from, from a management style, he, um, you know, one of the things was kind of interesting because um, his son, Nelson Hudis, um joined about the same time that I did. And our, our direct report was F. David Stone, um, pro, you know, probably one of the greatest, uh, well, I was gonna say Canadian, but probably one of the greatest motorsport photographers, regardless of what country they come from. And, uh, you know, Dave was a good guy to work for, but one of Hari's philosophies was to move us around the operation. So, you know, one year you would be working in PR and someone else would uh, kind of work with Dave on developing the marketing program. And then, uh, so, you know, I would be on one and then Nelson would be doing the other one. And then the year after we would swap roles. Um, everyone there had to sell. That, that was part of our responsibility. So we had our, you know, our call lists and people that we would go out and, and visit and, and help, you know, bring the revenue in, help pay for our paychecks. Um, but, but it, it gave, it gave all of us a good grounding on different aspects of the, you know, the, the, the marketing side of the business. And, you know, I think that that experience, uh, I think made it easier for Sid to bring on, you know, still a, a relatively young buck to, uh, to join him on, you know, what was going to be some, uh, some new motorsport programs that he was working on. Yeah. 
I've also heard that Harvey had some interesting uh, ideas when it came to security, and it's something we've heard a couple times on this podcast. But I've heard heard there's a story said about a guard dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was during an era where he did have a lot of problems with campers and and uh, controlling uh, the rowdyism, et cetera, et cetera. And at one point, he built a wall around Mosport to try and prevent people from coming in uh, or climbing in. Right. But uh, what he did, uh, part of that program was that he hired a security company who used Bouvier security dogs, guard dogs. And one day, for whatever reason, I got tricked into putting on the suit to go out and face one of these bouviers and uh, the, the trainer would command the dog to come and get me and grab me on the arm. And those suits had steel rods going up and I could feel the pressure of the dog's jaw right through the iron. Except the difficulty was that when the trainer told him to stop he was having a hell of a time. So he wasn't going to stop and he didn't until the trainer came over and pulled him off me. <laughs> and of course, smart ass, what was your comment? Oh, so yeah. So I was there at the time. I, I think this is when you were with MRP. And um, I remember making a joke. So it was a demo that Sid was doing for some media that, that were there on site. And I'm pretty sure we did it down in the paddock. We and did. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just a smart ass kid hanging around and Sid's got this suit on him. He looked like the Michelin man with the thing on uh, kind of a like a baseball catcher's face mask. And uh, so I jokingly said, um, I, I hope your will's up to date, Dad. <laughs> but, then, but then when the dog attacked like i was genuinely concerned right because yeah um it became yeah, very it real yes it's <laughs> right like the 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 owner was calling him off and you know no concern and it's like called the dog again wasn't listening and all of a sudden he broke into a sprint over to where the dog and and i mean i'm maybe misremembering this but i thought the dog actually got you down on the ground Mm, close while well, he close. pulled my yeah. arm down yeah yeah so. yeah what i learned later is that the jaw pressure of a bouvier was 400 pounds per square inch wow but but the wow. purpose i think the purpose they, of the demo is they don't attack they break bones is what yeah. they do compared to uh other security dogs what, what they wanted to do, because everyone knew about German Shepherds and, and Dobermans, but not as many people knew or feared Bouviers. So I think the end result is Sid's demo helped with security at the track. <laughs> Things you do for a client, eh? Yeah. Yeah, there's always another PR guy to come along of something yeah, like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh. Oh so maybe Jerry, you want to talk a little bit more about the 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 eighties, um, and and just working at the at at Mosport, working for Harvey, because that was a a special time for motorsport in our country, just with all the the homegrown talent and everything that was coming up in those years, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um... 
I mean, there's been lots of golden eras, but I, I think for you know anyone of our generation or someone of your age, Sam, who's listened to anyone of our generation wax on about you know the the glory days. Uh, certainly, the '80s would would have been a highlight. Yeah. And uh, you know, my my timing in in starting at Mostport in '82 was was fortunate uh, because they had just landed a long term. I think it was five year deal with uh, Labatt's um, to be the sponsor and, um, you know, and, and the, the series at the time were pretty healthy. So, you know, you had Can-Am, you had IMSA GT, um, and, and Labatt's spent a ton of money on, uh, on, you know, marketing the event. So it wasn't just the money that they paid to the track, but it ended up getting integrated into, um, you know, what they did to sell beer and, and they did a good job of it. So, um, uh, you know, through when, when I think back on, on some of the races that stand out for me, uh, I, you know, as far as the, the major pro series, I think probably the, the, the one that I enjoyed the most and, and in large part, cause there was a, a Canadian connection and, you know, it was kind of a cool brand at the time. And that was the, um, uh, the Labatt GT. Um, I want to say, I, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I think uh, it would have been uh, probably about uh, 83, 84, but it, it was the year that Bill Adam was driving for uh, Tullius, Bob Tullius, and yeah. uh, Bill ended up winning the race in, in the JAG. And it, you know, it was one of those weekends where uh, the, the JAG was the focal point of, of the promotion going into the event. Uh, you know, Bill came up and did some advance work and uh you know everything just kind of clicked and uh I, I just remember the the energy and the emotion when they pulled into that winner circle you know the one that used to be beside the tower and uh it, it was it was a good happy day all around for canadian motorsport um and then a couple of years later uh you know two things two two events or two races stand out um and again one that i'll i'll never forget and as a connection with uh with ron and and with your uncle rob and and that was the the very first players gm race um at, at the track and you know it wasn't the feature but it sure as heck felt like it was the feature race it it, <laughs> it was the one that you know people were talking about um, I think there had been, and, you know, people will correct me if I'm wrong in this, but, you know, I think they had a, uh, an, an entry list that was kind of in around 50 to begin with. And then it just seemed as we were getting a couple of weeks out, the momentum would kept picking up and there were more drivers wanting to come in and more wanting to come in. And they, they topped, uh, went over 70 entries. Yeah. I think, and, it, was, uh, I think it was 76. Is what 76. It was. Really? I it was. Yeah. Yeah. And... <laughs> And, so you know, I, Sam, the irony of that whole program was that GM never raced, never went racing. And this series was a, one of the few times that they were front and center in a series. And it was all, you know, put together with a fellow by the name of uh, Marty Shenhall and who worked in their engineering department. Uh, John Powell had some input, but even then they had to go to Detroit to get permission to become part of the series. And, and it, at that time I was working for Stan Houston and doing players. So it was perfect for players to be able to come in and sponsor that 
uh, program along with GM. So I don't know what it would have been like, Ron, for you in the car with that size of field around you. I would have been up in the media center and just the, the, the mass of cars, like from the start finish line all the way down, you know, corner 10 back to towards nine. And from the media center, those first few laps were hairy. Can't imagine what it was like for, for the drivers. <laughs> Yeah, the um, I think they ended up uh, because of the the number of entries they split up they split up qualifying and then they ended up with a qualifying race to determine the final ten starters after okay. after qual after uh, uh, qualifying sessions and I don't know I'm guessing there was at least forty whatever the maximum allowed on the track is what they started. It would have been 40 plus. Oh yeah. 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 No, I, um, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, it was cool for, for, for me as a driver, just because it was, this was, you know, I, I drove the car to the track and suddenly you're, you're, that's right. This car you drove to the track, you're now in a, uh, in a pretty big deal and you got a chance Provided you can drive it home, you might drive home with uh, five grand for the win, <laughs> right? And another thousand bucks in points money. So yeah. it would that would which is what what drove the the number of entries. It was uh, you know had you know close to close to eighty drivers thinking <clears throat> I'm getting that five five or six grand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So was that was that players who would have put up that prize money? Or? Yeah. Wow, just a huge investment, right? For the because yeah, there was also in the in the first year that the two, you know, they had two races that were that were uh, live telecasts as well. Wow, right? And, uh, yeah. Back then, what was uh, CTV's Wild World Sports? And that's where. Yeah. And, uh, that's that they ended up using um, <clears throat> certainly at that at the Molson Indy in Quebec. Which was the first race I won the the San Art San Air Trial. Chris Economaki was the the color commentator or commentator, and that's where I met Chris for the first time. Was there, mm -hmm. and um, Chris Chris ended up being a uh, uh, helping me with uh, uh, getting a getting a getting a visa to race in the states. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Anyway, know? carry on with the Prittles. Never mind me. Yeah. No. 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 Oh. oh that's yeah, and and you know just to flesh out Golden Air, I mean uh, the the Rothmans Porsche series and and the Export A Formula Two Thousand series, and and of course you know the the Honda Michelin, which you know yes. probably everyone loved it, but probably didn't get enough credit for starting that Golden Era and mm. uh, you know the work that Ralph Lucio did on on that series. Um, it, it was a lot of fun, and then you know it was a gas for me. Uh, a couple of years later, when I, I hooked up with Sid um, at, at his company, that uh, we're working on players, and that was my day-to-day -day job was was to work on the Players GM series in Eastern Canada, and then we had a uh, another person by the name of Sylvia Proudfoot who was based and looked after based in Calgary and looked after that, and uh, you know those uh, when they would do the year-end shootouts. Um, there, there was just a, you know, it, it really had kind of a, a great cup, Super Bowl, big deal feel to it. And, uh, 
and in a lot of cases, the first time that you know a lot of these east and west drivers would would meet. Um, and then probably the one other you know most port related race that again not not the biggest one that I, I ever worked at, but I, I would say probably one of the most um, just just special is probably the best way I can describe it. And that was uh, again in '86. And that was the uh, the Budweiser 24, uh, which was the first 24-hour race at that track. Um, it was it was the World Challenge Series cars, and uh, you know so very much. Uh, I think Ron, they would have been showroom stockish, like the players' GM. Showroom stockish, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite as not quite as out of the showroom, drive them to the track as the, as, okay. as the Camaros <laughs> the and Firebirds of the, <laughs> the M series, but. Yeah, but but a, like a, a gorgeous field of cars, at, at least a gorgeous field of cars when the race started. <laughs> and, you know, what what I remember, we slept at the track, you know, we would take our little breaks and, you know, I've, I've never been to Le Mans, but I guess, you know, this would be the Canadian version. You would, you'd grab a, an hour or two here and there um and i you know i just remember being out walking the back of the um the pit boxes those wooden pit boxes and you would see you know like two crew members one one would be using a, a tire as a pillow grabbing some sleep and you know someone else would be folded over like this <laughs> sleeping um and probably the most strongest memory i have would have been as the as sunup and you, you would just look out across the track and there was this haze, you know, partly from the dew, but also from all the campfires that were burning at night. And, um, and you would start to be able to actually see the cars because at night in darkness, really, unless you were right at the front straight, you, what you were seeing were just two headlights. And, and it, you know, it almost felt like a scene out of Apocalypse Now that you would see these cars kind of coming around uh, nine and 10 um and it's almost like they're coming out of the the smoke and the fog and they're just covered in gaffer tape in the front okay. and you know repairs that they had to make during the night and then just the the countdown to that uh you know that 24th hour uh which you know uh for for any endurance race i, I think is kind of a cool thing about you know are, are the leaders going to be able to hang in can someone mount a challenge so yeah, for me, when I, I look back at, you know, my, my first time, uh, my first era at Mosport, uh, that, uh, uh, th those three ones are, are probably three that I would uh, put a, you know, put a little star beside. Cool. Very cool. Maybe uh, just because I jogged my memory talking about Labatt's, but maybe back it, we back it up for a second, talk <clears throat> about that kind of end of the Formula One era in 77. And uh, I don't know, Sid, if you can shed some light on what was going on in that around that time. But the stories I've heard is that Labatt wanted to put the Formula One race in downtown Toronto. Is that is that true? Um, it was partly true, I guess. Okay. Uh, certainly, <laughs> they were looking at. Uh, but what what happened was, and I'm not sure whether it was was Bernie was or Bernie Ecclestone was around in those days, but. They talked about the lakeshore and the straightaway, and they said they'd end up in Hamilton. So, right. Uh, <laughs> and and going through all the 
approvals that would have to be done. I mean, subsequently, the Indy um, managed to do that, but uh, mm. at that time, it wasn't going to happen. So I think that's around the time it ended up moving to Montreal. Yeah. And what was that? What was the culture at the at that the were you still with uh, MRB then, or were or MP? Well, I, sorry, uh, what uh, the firm, the PRA firm? I'd have to think where I was at that time to tell yeah. you the truth. I'm, I'm not sure. I had some involvement with the the race in Montreal um, at the beginning, but of course. Um, you'd have to be bilingual so our Montreal office uh, yeah. took over most of the management of that race from a PR perspective but I did the English PR and then of yeah. course because of the magnitude of the event mm -hmm. uh, what we used to do is if, if there wasn't someone from Toronto covering we would write the stories for the Toronto papers wow but Labatt's got their mention and got their uh, publicity uh, extended beyond the Quebec borders. What was it like to lose the Grand Prix at, at Mosport, though? Was that kind of a, a strange feeling? I guess you still had the, the client, but then it's moving to a different place, right? Yeah, I, I don't know that it was... Uh, with all the backroom stuff that was going on, it was pretty obvious that it wasn't going to stay there uh, without some huge or significant changes in the racetrack. And it was all, it was politics was at the Formula One level uh, versus what they could accomplish in Montreal. Hmm. With the, was it from, coming from the drivers or just from the, the promoters, the Formula uh, One promoters? No, it was more the body, governing body of more uh, Formula One. Yeah. I mean, they would, I'm sure stuff was planted with the drivers to talk about the lack of safety and right. et cetera. The, I mean, the guardrails scared the hell out of them. And I don't blame them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was politics, that's all. And it ended up moving there. And, you know, one time the, the, the this discussion was to alternate them back and forth. But once it got into Montreal, and Montreal was such a international city. Mm -hmm. It just became, well, as you know, it became a huge event in the city of Montreal and Canada. Yeah. I think the mayor wrote a few checks too to help along the way, the mayor of Montreal. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No question. Yeah. Yeah. So, what about this? Oh, were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that it didn't hurt that you had the, the new, the new, Canadian star winning the first Canadian Grand Prix in, on uh, Ile Notre Dame. So. That's right. Yeah. 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 And it was. Um, and spraying Labatt. Spraying Labatt. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the reaction, I mean, it was just chaos. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. So what was it, what was it like then in uh I I believe in 97 you went to work for uh uh Andy Evans. Yeah. It was an experience. Um, <laughs> uh, Andy was an interesting individual. Uh he um 
I don't know whether you knew it or not, but he was a special advisor, uh, money advisor to Bill Gates. Hmm. Yeah. So Andy had deep, deep pockets. And uh, when I was offered the job, it was uh, his vice president was a fellow by the name of Jack Long, who I'd worked with on the Molson Indy. Mm -hmm. And when I walked into the uh, room, it was Andy had just bought Seabird. And when I walked into the meeting room and looked around and saw all of the motorsport talent in one place, uh, it was unbelievable to me. But uh, after the race, the next day, the newspapers had said, car owner, track owner wins uh, Sebring. And I ran into Andy in the lobby and he looked at me, he said, I guess that's not good, is it? I said, no, it's not. <laughs> so he said, well, so what do I do? I said, step out of the car. And he looked at me, but he took my advice and he did step out of the car. And, but Andy um, he, he paid very well. And uh, he did look at other venues he was going to buy. He was going to buy Vegas. Uh, in fact, uh, I was out there we were we thought we were going to end up moving from Tampa to Vegas and it was uh it was a Labor Day weekend Betty was out looking for a house and then I got a call uh, at that time four or five of the vice presidents decided that they had had enough of Andy I mean he was different and so they resigned and I thought, oh man, here I am in Vegas, no job, what am I gonna do? Um, and then I got the call from uh, Montreal to ask if uh, I wanted to be part of the COOL program. So, uh, but he, uh, he loved the media. He, uh, you know, it was, it was always said, can you get me into, uh, uh, what's the, Sorry, your brain fade. The big uh, daily USA Today. Can you get me a story? And then I did. Uh, so I was his hero in terms of the fact that I, I, I was his avenue to get ink, and that's what he really wanted in the end. But he, he spent I, I don't know how much money uh, on motorsport, and not just a series. Someone told me he spent 16 mil a year on it. So, wow, it's in the 90s. I'm trying to remember in in 97 when I got, I thought it was one of one of you two who called me to inquire about driving the Ferrari 333 for Andy. That poster was in the background behind Jerry's head there. Oh, is that it? Was that yeah. that race? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Andy yeah, had I, bought most for Sid, I'm thinking it was you that called. Yeah, it wasn't me. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I was at Bridgestone yeah. at the time. Because it was all part of our marketing strategy was to get a Canadian yeah. in that yeah. event and in that car. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's when Andy also had the uh, perception of um, taking a motor race and making it a big festival weekend. Yeah. So he did the music concert or festival, whatever it was uh, at that time as well. Pretty good lineup too. 
Pardon me? And it was a big success. Huge, huge yeah. success. Yes. Yeah. That's it's, awesome. I, I remember getting, getting the call from Andy Evans and it was, okay, who is this really? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do what? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Worked out okay, huh, Ron? It, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah. I was a little, when I, when I drove the car, I insisted on a, on a little bit of track time somewhere, anywhere prior to the race weekend. And um, they, they stopped at Putnam Park, which I was very familiar with in uh, mm. Indiana, outside Indianapolis. That was our when yeah. drove the Chevy with the, with, for Buzz McCall and, and Will Moody and American Equipment. That was our sort of test track. So I was very familiar with it. So we, we stopped there and that was where it was the, the Odudu moment where this thing did not have power steering and it was with a lot of downforce, it was hard to turn. And I had about a month to try to get hands and forearms in shape. But thankfully I, I did get a bit of seat time to, it was like, oh boy, I got a little bit of work to do before I drive this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah he did he did some good things and uh yeah no i was very very thankful for the opportunity it was yeah uh, yeah it was, uh, such an, an awesome awesome car to drive and he got an opportunity to drive the relics 24 in 98 in the for andy and uh, with uh bob wallach Yannick oh right, yes. And uh, Max Pappas said it was Yeah, uh, wow. Yeah. It was our race to lose and we did. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Anyway. Uh, so Andy owned an island off of Vancouver. He had his own island. So and, and initially he used to fly from his island in Vancouver to Seattle every day wow to go work for uh, bill gates wow yeah what do you think i mean he was he was in and out in a short amount of time what do you think the reason was for his departure he was erratic with in dealing and uh you know uh people people just he he just bent people the wrong way yeah. and and a lot of these people were like high end People out of New York, they were people who knew their business really well. Uh, so um, interesting. He just overstepped the boundaries. That's all. I, I think you had mentioned too that uh, you know back to that sixteen million a year. I mean, he he was spending a lot of money, and you know from what you said, Sid uh, didn't see that there was going to be an opportunity to to turn that that around. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone, it wasn't only his money. It was part of the company's money. And that's where he ran aground. So, huh. however, yeah. we've seen them come and go. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, and the, and the good thing, again, I would have been on the sidelines, but, you know, there, there was a pretty rocky era uh, for the track uh, between the period that Harvey passed Mm -hmm. and Andy bought it so you know he 
at least sta stabilized it and steadied the waters a bit. And yeah. I, you know, I think yeah. probably set the table a bit for uh, uh, for Don Panos to come in That's and right. you know yeah. do all the great things that he ended up doing. For sure. Yeah. And I give Andy the credit for at least realizing that Panos was going to do the track well, and so didn't play games with the sale. Hmm. Right. Very good. So what, when did Don buy it? Like 99 or 2000? It was 98. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 98. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Andy really didn't own it all that long. Then. Oh, cause I worked for Andy from March 97 till, uh, late till September 97. So it was oh. a short lived career. Yeah. Wow. And then you went to work for, uh, an IndyCar, right? Well, I went to work for the cool program. Okay. With yeah. Paul and uh, Dario. Okay. What was that like? It was um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll tell you one thing. The, the marketing director for Brown and Williams was a guy named Bert Kramer. And, you know, considering all the years I worked for tobacco companies, but I learned more about marketing from Bert than I had in all of my other career, my entire career. They just knew how to get it done. And, and um, you know, the whole objective was to get cool mentions. Well, to start with, the name cool was easy to get uh, in terms of uh, photographs of the car and the graphics of the car. But also, you know, they they made their deal with Barry Green, so it was called Team Cool Green, and there was no mistake. And uh, Paul was uh, the character, no question of that. But he was also very, very important to Cool's marketing program. Dario was more of the businessman, but he was very efficient and got it done on the racetrack without Paul, as he said, used us. The aluminum bumper a lot is <laughs> racing career, including on Dario. <laughs> yeah. There seemed like there was so much uh, Canadian content back in, in those days. And there was, you know, Molson Indy, Toronto, Vancouver, races out west. Was there <laughs> ever talk about an Indy car race at Mosport in those days? Or that was just out of the question? Um, no, I think it was, there, it was talked about... Uh, but, you know, the whole concept of uh, street racing, which uh, was really a mindset of uh, John Frasco, who was the head of IndyCar at the time. And it was, you know, bring the event to the people. Don't make the people go to the event. And that's why these uh, city races were so successful. Yeah. I mean, I remember the... the you know, the politics that went through trying to get the race in Toronto. And uh, even though once we got it by city council, <clears throat> race day, I got a phone call from the front gate and they said, there's a huge backup here and the mayor's trying to get in. I said, well, put them in the biggest line there is. <laughs> to prove that we could dominate you know, I mean, that was 68,000 people were at that race. So, Wow. 
and Vancouver was just successful in, in that area down on the waterfront. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Did you race there, Dad? Uh, 1990 uh, Porsche race, yes. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yes. So when did uh, when did you retire, Sid? Yesterday. Yes. Which? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I uh, I'm gonna you know after what happened in uh, the cool program is the, in 2003 the U.S. Uh, Attorney General's uh, ban. Yeah. Tobacco sponsorship. Canada, it was never banned, but it was an, it was frowned upon. Yeah. So uh, around 2003, I uh, sort of went off on my own and decided that I better get out of the uh, away from the tobacco and try and uh, get other things to uh, support myself. So right. that's really when it started. And then, uh, you know, it's a long story. I went through uh, the, the motorsport stuff with uh, the tobacco companies and then eventually ended up uh, trying to remember where I went after that, Jerry, but. Um, well, there, I, yeah, I mean, I, when, when did Edmonton start? Oh, that was 1990, I think. Oh, probably a little later than that, but yeah. But so, I mean, Toronto until through 96. And then Edmonton. So Edmonton came after that somewhere right. or later than that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing it probably wouldn't have, it might've been some stuff that you worked on, but uh, kind of the next big event would have been when, when you were hired to do uh, the Edmonton IndyCar race. Correct. Which yes. you did for five years. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 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 And that was, um, there, that was a real challenge because the Edmonton Raceway was quarter ways from the city. It was out in the boonies, but uh, it was uh, it was a very very good circuit, and the Indy cars adapted very well to it. So uh, it went quite well. And uh, again, politics, I think, or money, whatever. I remember the GM there? Uh, he was replaced. And then they went through another GM. So it was was on the bubble for a few years, regardless. Yeah. So then he retired a second time. And then he started working for the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah, which I uh, did my last duty on April 30th this year. So. Wow. There you go. I'm uh, doing volunteer work for the March of Dimes. Excellent. And you were you were inducted into the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame as well. Yes, I was. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. First PR guy. Yeah. What's that? I said you were the first PR person, as far oh, as I know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was. Yes. Yeah. The last. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How is it? How is it today? Like going to I know, uh, going to a CTMP now after having been there in 1961 on that at that first race. Ooh, wow! Well, I haven't been out there for. Uh, I remember the last time I was out there, 
was within the last couple of years, I believe. Yeah. I went out. Um, I think I remember seeing you at the uh, were you at the Formula the Formula One historic weekend. I'm not sure I was. Uh, okay, but uh, I mean, obviously, it's what you saw in in '61 was uh, pretty um, not as modern as what you see today, of course, and right. uh, it was. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of things that didn't have. Uh, whether the paddock or infield was grass or what have you, it, it just, it was a very rural racetrack yeah. compared to what it is today. <clears throat> a lot rougher around the edges, very rough around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> and Jerry, of course, you still involved with, uh, with us, with the racetrack. So Yes. Yeah. It came, um, after I, uh, I did a, a stint with Bridgestone Firestone for a number of years and then ventured into uh, like 18 months, I, I went in a different direction, went to work for uh, uh, the NHL Players Association uh, through, uh, through Edelman PR, uh, mm-hmm. again, the, the company that we were involved with at one point, and then um, joined in 2005. So, you know, I was there on staff for, uh, till about, uh, 2011. And then, you know, kind of looking, looking at the, 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 the twilight years and wanted to, you know, take another kick at agency life. And, um, again, you know, I talked about going in and resigning with, with Harvey and how tough that was. And, uh, I was going in to miles and saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to move on. I want to make some changes and, uh, you know, really not knowing what kind of a reception I would get. And, um, he couldn't have been better. And, you know, they, uh, then it was still most sport then, uh, became my, my first client. So, um, and I picked up one other client and my third client, uh, became what ended up being Canadian motorsport ventures. And uh, that, that was, uh, I mean, it was an exciting period, uh, but, but it sure was different. I just, uh, I can remember, you know, here, so I'm, I'm in my, my office now, my, as I call it, the basement dungeon. And uh, I got a phone call from Ron and uh, said, I've got something that I think you want to be a part of. Uh, and I need you to meet me. Uh, I think he said tomorrow, or it might've been the day after, um, it'll be a location out near the airport and you need to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I had, I had no idea what was coming. I thought it was a new racing program, like, a you know, a NASCAR program that he was launching and, and all of that. And, uh, so that morning I got the address, which was Orlando, but I still hadn't pieced it all together. Uh, starting to, you know, wonder. And I, I remember arriving at reception, Ron came out and, and greeted me, took me into a room, I signed the paperwork, and then took me into a boardroom. And, uh, you know, there was Carlo and, um, mm. oh, help me out here. Um, 
Al Bowden. Yeah. Al, uh, sorry, yeah. How could I? Yeah, Al. Um, and and that's when I learned. So, anyways, it's uh, it's kind of funny because you know I was doing advert advertising PR work on on this hand with Miles and couldn't talk to him, although I knew bloody well he knew what was going on. <laughs> So, but but it was uh, it was it was a fun assignment, and you know I was thankful, for this, especially in those early days of of my company of getting to to work on it. And Ron had brought a a great PR company in to work on it with some really good people, and I came in as as kind of the motorsport PR guy just to help make sure that we uh, you know we covered those end of things and. Um, uh again it was a bit of a different assignment where you couldn't tell them you know why they needed to be available and join a conference call because we had big news and as it turned out that day the honda indy was also making a major announcement and i can oh, i can yeah. remember talking to motorsport journalists saying that's great uh but i'm i'm very confident that you're going to want to be a part of what we're doing and a, a couple of them just said, no, I, I got to carry on and do my, uh, you know, do my assignment over here. And um, then phoning me after and going, I guess you were right. I guess I should have been on that conference call. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's been a, a good run. And it, uh, you know, when I, for me, when I think back, you know, probably my first visit to the track would have been around 67, 68. Um, and it's very much, you know, a, a second home for me. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's great to see what, uh, what Ron, Linda and Carlo have done that. I mean, I, I still can't drive through that tunnel at corner 10 or, or take a look at that event center without just, you know, just saying, wow, like it, it's, uh, it, it's so impressive and it, uh, you know, it's made such a difference on, um, the feel and the vibe of that place. And uh, I don't think there's anything as cool as when you see those, you know, those big rigs coming on for their, their parade, uh, you know, at, above the tunnel and coming in at corner 10 and, and just kind of kicking off, you know, that whole weekend. And I mean, Sid talked about uh, with the IndyCar races and the street circuits, and, you know, that was very much in vogue. Um, I think what we've seen in recent years is, uh, is kind of a return to those days of the sixties where, mm -hmm. um, you know, road courses are, are cool and, and hip again. And, you know, you, you walk around the grounds at the track when, you know, hopefully we can do that very soon. And, and you see families camping and, you know, just that opportunity to, mm -hmm. to get outside and, um, and you know, it's very much like the tide and, uh, there, there's a, there's a good high tide coming and, uh, you know, I think IMSS has done a great job. I, I think we're starting to see health return to, uh, to the, to the domestic series. Um, and you know, there's just so many good stories that, uh, you know, that are, are still to be told mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I'm mean, looking forward to 2022 when, Hopefully it'll be uh, a, more of a return. I, I don't know what that. <laughs> I don't want to say return to normal, but yes. uh, better days ahead. Yeah, right. and we won't let you fully retire either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you told me it's not Mostport related or CTMP related, but you said you have a good Michael Schumacher story, Jerry. 
Yeah, I, I, so I I'd think like to fun. hear that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, so the uh, just to set the stage, it was uh, while I was working at Bridgestone, um, and again, I won't even say the year because I think it was uh, around ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Uh, someone can fact check it, uh, but it was the first year uh, that Ferrari uh, had, had become a, a Bridgestone um, shod uh, team. Um, so, you know, in the, the, uh, 97, so probably would have been closer to 99, 97, uh, we started with two teams and, and all of the strong, you know, two of the newer teams and all of the strong teams were on Michelin at the time, but, you know, gradually as teams saw the quality of, of the product, they started coming over. Um, so this, this story takes place at the uh, at the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal, um, and it, you know as part of our assignment. So here in Canada, for example, uh, you know it was a great property for us to leverage, um, and we would get packages from um, from uh, Bridgestone in Tokyo of you know here's hospitality, um, you know here's here's some special access passes to get into the paddock. Uh, and uh, here are tickets uh, to use. And, you know, I, I learned from one of the best of them with Sid there, uh, you know, not, not, to, not to give everything out at once, always keep tickets in, in the back pocket. So I did that. And I uh, had yeah, about... You, you taught me that one, Jerry. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, I mean, whatever I had, I had about 50 tickets left. Um, it was Thursday of race weekend. And part of the process for me was to go down and meet the PR reps of each of the Bridgestone F1 teams, you know, welcome to the track, anything we can do. Um, and Ferrari at the time had a, a brand new PR person. And so, you know, Montreal would have been about maybe the fourth, fifth race into the season, thereabouts. And she was still kind of learning her way. And, and I guess somewhere along the lines, uh, you know, whether it was her role or someone else's, um, she didn't acquire enough tickets for guests that they wanted to bring to the track. And she said, do you know anywhere that I can, I can get tickets? Because I'm trying to go to the uh, the Grand Prix office and they're sold out and the race is sold out. And I went, not a problem. I've, I've got you covered. How many do you need? And, you know, she said 20, 25, whatever it was. And I said, done. I said, when, when do you want them? And she says, well, if, if I could get them tomorrow morning, uh, which would have been Friday morning uh, so that I can then deliver them to our guests. And I said, no problem. Absolutely happy to do it. And, um, and then she said, so how do we work out payment? And I said, don't worry about it. I said, it feels like a line out of the Godfather, but <laughs> somewhere down the road, you know, um, you know, we'll, I, I may need a favor. And yeah, you'll be called upon to do a service. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, um, and I said, but, you know, we're just, we're so happy to have Ferrari running on the product that, you know, I'm happy to help. And, and then, really jokingly i said however if you could arrange to have michael schumacher come visit our hospitality suite on sunday that would be great and you know i i was fully expecting her just to yeah. blow me off and she goes and, and again remember she was new like she was four or five races in and she said 
I'll see what I can do. We'll get this done for you. <laughs> and I went like, and so, you know, the next morning when I gave her the tickets, she said, it's all looked after. Michael will be there at such and such a time. And, uh, you know, couldn't believe it. And, you know, we were, Good work, uh, Jerry. Were, yeah. Sorry? Man, Good man. work, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we were nervous right up until the, the set time of, you know, is he going to show and all of that. So in he comes, um, I think probably just the PR person with him, not much of an entourage. Uh, we had North American guests there uh, that, that weekend. Uh, so the head of PR um, for uh, Bridgestone Firestone, Ron, you may have met along the line, Trevor Hoskins. Yes. yes yeah, real gentleman. He yeah. was one of my reports when I was at Bridgestone. So Trevor was the, uh, the MC. Welcome Michael into the group, uh, proceeded to go through about a two, three minute introduction of, you know, everything that Michael had done in his career, world championships, races won, polls, uh, on and on. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Schumacher and, you know, the place erupted with, uh, I think we had about 150 guests there that weekend. And uh, Michael steps up to the, uh, the microphone and says, uh, in, you know, Trevor, thank you for that, uh, for that introduction. Uh, however, you made one big mistake. And, and he paused and you could just feel like the tension coming into the room. <laughs> he, I mean, he, you know, great driver, but had a bit of a reputation as, you know, not necessarily always being easy to get along with. Um, and he said, your mistake is that you forgot one very important milestone in my life. And he said, my very first win in my life was in karting and I won on Bridgestones. And he said, so I'm happy to be home again and and then you know kind of launched into his thing and i'll tell you like as, as a pr person or probably everyone in the company you could have just run up and hugged the guy right and yeah. just thank you there's, there's, you couldn't have scripted it better and you know and, and then so he, he did his uh you know did his talk and everyone was just focused on him uh we had a very tight window with him i want to say it was about 15 minutes you know, we had told everyone, no autographs. We can't, you know, we can't do that. There's just too many people. Um, and so then he starts to walk away and then he stops and he says, I can stay for another 15, 20 minutes and we'll do as many autographs as we can. Wow. And then he did it. I think, you know, most people got what they wanted and then he left and uh, I'll, I'll just never free, like it completely changed you know, my, my perception on, you know, what he was like away from the track and just uh, mm -hmm. a real professional. And uh, yeah, so, so that's wow. the story. Very cool. There, I, I'm guessing there should have been some Bridgestone, Firestone people hugging you after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, just doing my job, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was good. It was a fun experience. Yeah. It was awesome. Awesome. Wow. Well, listen, guys, I thank you very much, both of you, for, for coming on the show and, and sharing stories. And thanks for all the all the work over the years that you guys both have done to promote this sport and our track. And I appreciate we all appreciate that. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for having yeah. Us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yet, yet yeah. again, yet again, another another family. <laughs> <laughs>
that starts start to start to the track and ends up with uh, decades of a career in motorsport. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And and I, I just gotta you know mention now uh, just kind of squeeze this last in. Uh, you know, Sid and I have had the spotlight here, um, but but my mom, uh, you know, in in a number of different roles, has has worked for Mosport. Uh, my sister Deanne, uh, you know, right. has, has worked um, uh, in motorsports and uh, worked on a lot of programs with um, uh, with with Sid and and with me, uh, and and my wife Donna back in 1982 when I started there. Um, we we were engaged and like we were doing anything and everything we could just to try and bring some money into the household and um they put her to work selling souvenirs down in the the old souvenir booths so yeah so you're right um it's it's been a a, a family affair uh yeah through a lot of the decades absolutely and, yeah. and now you've got the next generation with <laughs> sam and with patrick and uh Surprised yeah. you haven't put your, you know, put your dog to work out there. <laughs> but no, thank you very much, guys. Yes, she does too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think creates work. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, guys. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you so much, guys. <laughs>